I just want to take some time and pray over our Father so, and honor them. So if you're a father, would you please stand at this time? And we just want to pray for you and thank God for you. And we've got some great fathers in this congregation. Uh, certainly mentored me and blessed me, but uh, we've got some great men in this room right now. So I just want to pray over you. Father, thank you for the fathers before me right now. Thank you for those who influenced us, who've gone on to be with you. Uh, Father, I pray that um, the fathers in this room would know that what they do makes a difference, that they are um, making a difference for eternity in the words that they say, the actions that they take. And so, Lord, I pray that today they would feel appreciated, uh, that they would feel honored today uh, because they certainly are deserving of such. And, uh, Father, we're thankful that you our Heavenly Father, and you are the model for what fatherly love looks like. So, Lord, pray your blessing over our service today. We love you. We're thankful for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, before you're seated, if everybody else would stand and join you, we're going to read from the Bible. Stand in honor of God's Word. All right, so today, well, I guess you need to know where. Uh, if you don't know already, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, uh, verse 18. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, looking at uh, really the unsung hero of the, um, the, unsung hero of the, um, the story of Jesus' birth, Joseph. So we'll look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and following. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Gracious Father, I pray today that as we humble ourselves before your word, we'd be shaped, we'd be formed, uh, our minds would be renewed. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would really devote ourselves today to applying your word to our lives, Uh, the men and women, the fathers and mothers, everybody in this room, I pray would take seriously what your word says and our opportunity to, our calling to apply it to our lives. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May you see it. Well, you know how uh, you'll, you'll be driving around and you'll see a minivan and uh, maybe not a minivan. Don't want to stereotype. But, but you see something, uh, a car, and they've got, you know they've got some kids because they've got some bumper stickers on the back, right? And uh, they're bragging on their bumper stickers because they've got all A honor roll, you know. So they'll have that stuck there. They'll have, you know, something like all-star team or something like that. So we put all that in a very humble way, I'm sure, but we want to brag on our kids. But can you imagine if they had minivans in the first century, and if Joseph had one, uh, 
man, what sticker would he put on the back of his car, right? Uh, my son, creator of the universe. Uh, my son, savior of the world. Uh, there are no perfect fathers, but I raised a perfect son. You know, something like that maybe. Um, you know, a lot of times dads will stand around and we'll start telling stories about our kids because we're proud of them. And, and so, and we don't really mean to do this, I don't think, but this is the way it often plays out. One, one dad will tell a story about his son, you know, scoring a goal or something. Yeah, you know, my son scored two goals and tell about that. And then it just goes around and it just keeps getting, you know, a little bit more braggadocious as you go around. Uh, a little bit of one-upmanship in that. And uh, can you imagine Joseph in that kind of situation? He's always got a joker in the deck. You know, what, whatever anybody else says, he always has a joker in the deck. Yeah, you remember that storm last week that came to Nazareth and just magically stopped before it got... Yeah, that was my son, Jesus, who stopped that. And uh, anyway, so he's always got that. But you know, the Bible doesn't really tell us a lot about Joseph. It doesn't really say much about him as a person. He's only a character in two Gospels uh, where it really kind of talks about him as a person. Uh, so we know a few things. You know, Mary's there right from the beginning, uh, of course, and she's there right at the, the end. She's there at the cross. But Joseph is not there, the whole uh, account of Jesus' life. What do we know about Joseph? We know he lived in Nazareth. Uh, we know he's a descendant of King David. We know that he was a carpenter or probably more like some kind of craftsman who worked with wood and stone and metal. Like a, maybe kind of like a construction worker in many ways. And we know that when Jesus was 12, uh, Joseph took him to the temple. Now, you just got to imagine you've been entrusted with the Son of God, okay? And you've taken him to the temple. That shows he's a righteous man. He's a devoted man. Uh, but somewhere along the way, Jesus went missing for multiple days, okay? And you're like halfway back and you realize, anybody seen Jesus in a few days? No, we haven't. So they had to go back and find him. Uh, this is really all we know about Joseph. We don't know a whole lot about him. But I think in today's text, we learn a lot of things from him uh, that are very beneficial, not just to the fathers, but to all of us. So four powerful lessons from Joseph today for us to meditate on and think about and hopefully apply to our lives. Four powerful lessons from Joseph. Lesson number one. Pursue word-centered righteousness. Pursue word-centered righteousness. Now, the main idea of the story doesn't really have anything to do about fathers. It doesn't really have anything to do about any of that. It's not ultimately about Joseph. And, in fact, that says a lot about Joseph, that he took on a role where pretty much his entire life, it was not going to be about him. It would be about his son. And this passage begins by saying this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. So the main idea of this whole section is to talk about the birth of Jesus who is called the Christ, the Messiah. We take for granted that Jesus was the Messiah. We've had a thousand or two thousand years to kind of warm up to that idea. But in uh, the first century, they're still making a case that Jesus is the Messiah. So this gospel is written and certainly this story of his birth is written so that as people read this and as they reflect on what happens, they would know the identity of Jesus is the Messiah. Christ, Messiah is not a surname. It is a title. He is Jesus, the Christ, the King, the Son of God, the Messiah. And so notice what he says in verse 22. All this took place 
to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So he's making the case that this birth is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So a lot of times when Paul goes into a, a synagogue, what does it say he does? He goes in there and he reasons with them. He persuades them from the scriptures. What scriptures did he use? He used the Old Testament to try to make the case that Jesus is the Messiah. So that is the point of, the, of this uh, gospel and really this section. That's why he's got the genealogy. Y'all are doing so great in your Bible reading plans. Then you hit that genealogy, and it's a tough couple of days. Uh, perhaps when you hit that genealogy, the son of, the father of, the father of, the father of, all pointing back to the identity of Christ. He's the son of Abraham. He's the son of David. He's the son of Joseph, the son of God. Jesus, as it says in verse 21, the whole point to this, she will give birth to a son, you are to give him the name Jesus. Why the name Jesus? Because he will save his people from their sins. And so if you were to uh, go up to the Apostle Paul and you were to kind of pin him down and say, Paul, I want you to give me the gospel in one sentence. Just give it to me in one sentence. What would that be? I think we find it in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, where he says, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. Remember Jesus Christ. Raised from the dead, descended from David, this is my gospel. So when Mary is found to be with child, she is betrothed or engaged to Joseph. And of course, engagement, marriage in the first century looked uh, significantly different than it does in our own day. Uh, the marriage was probably arranged uh, among uh, it was probably arranged by the men beforehand. The marriages uh, would have been an alliance of sorts uh, where it benefits both parties. The average age for a man to be married in the first century was around 30. The average age for a woman was in their teenage years. That's the world that they were living in. But another difference is that an engagement was uh, a legal obligation. It was legally binding in the first century. So you could only get out of this engagement through divorce. Now here's what we know about Joseph in this passage. It says, look at verse 19. It says, because Joseph, her husband, was, and there's that phrase, faithful to the law. His actions that he is about to take are coming out of the fact of his, uh, coming out of his character out of his integrity, out of who he is. He's about to make decisions based upon his character and integrity. And he is a man who is, in, in the Hebrew, sadiq. He is a righteous man. Uh, that would mean that he was someone who studied the law, who learned it, and who observed it, applying it to his life. A couple of chapters over in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talks about this kind of person. Matthew chapter 5 verse 17, I invite you to turn there with me. Matthew chapter 5 verse 17, Jesus talks about this kind of righteous person. We think of righteousness, a lot of times we think of uh, the way that Paul uses the word, which is biblically accurate to say that uh, the righteousness of Christ is imputed or given to us and our guilt is given to him. That's not the way Jesus is using that word in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. 
In Matthew 5, 17, he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Why did Jesus need to say that? Because he was about to get into a habit of saying, You have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. You have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. And he talks about a number of different things. And he doesn't want them to get the wrong idea that he's going away from the law. No, in fact, he is the fulfillment of the law. He's what the law points to. In verse 18, it says, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is all about righteousness. And righteousness for Christ in this context means that you are following the commands of the law. You are, your life is being formed by it. And you're even teaching others in the same way. The same language is being used to speak of Joseph. He is someone who whose life is reoriented around the Torah, around the law. He is reading it, he's studying it, he's meditating on it, and he's putting it into practice in his life. Let's break that down for just a moment and reflect on our responsibility to the Bible. First, you have to read it. Read the Bible. Joseph didn't have this sitting on his nightstand. We've got this Bible, I've got Bibles galore in my office, and if you don't have a Bible, there's an app for that, right? And there's not only an app, there's about 15 million different versions that you could read it from in any given point where you stand. You can pick up God's Word and you can read it, and it is a beautiful blessing for us that we're able to do that. Joseph did not have that advantage. In order for him to know the law, he would have to go to synagogue, he would have to listen to it, but he... Like he, didn't, he couldn't afford to doze off or to, uh, to kind of go away during a message because that was his way that week to hear God's word, to try to commit it to his mind so that when he walked out those doors of the synagogue and went into his daily life, he could continue to think about it and read it in his mind. What kind of obligation is that? What kind of seriousness is that that he would read and study God's word? Number two, Study it. How would Joseph study it? Well, I believe the answer's over in Deuteronomy 6. This is where I think God helps them understand how they are to study it. In Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and following, you just jot this down. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and, excuse me, and with all your strength. By the way, uh, anybody who's going to be a righteous, faithful person, uh, anybody who's going to be that kind of person, it's going to be because you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But he says this, these commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. This is the kind of person Joseph was. He was faithful to the law. You could not be faithful to the law and not embody this. That's who he was. He didn't have 
a theological library. You know, uh, talking about apps, uh, anytime I go listen to a sermon, uh, it's, it's always fun because I have on my phone, I have a, a research, Bible research database on my phone. It's like a full-blown library that when someone's preaching, if they say something, I'm like, well, that's kind of curious. I can pull it up and I can see if what they're saying is accurate in live time while they're preaching on it. I'm not going to tell you all what that app is, by the way. Um, but, but it's there. We have all of these resources at our disposal. You know what Joseph had at his disposal? He had other people that he could go and he would talk about it. He would uh, write it on the door frame of his house. He would saturate his life with the Word of God. The, one of the last, the last Bible I received before my dad passed away, I brought it to him and I handed it to him and he had bought it for me, but I wanted him to write something in the front of it. And he did, and he wrote this verse from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Folks, we have an epidemic today of people with biblical certainty with a lack of of biblical literacy. In order for you to be biblically literate, you don't just need to read the Bible, you need to study the Bible. We need to move beyond the elementary teachings. We need to go deeper and deeper because this is a 2,000-year-old book written in different languages on the other side of the globe in a world that we can hardly even begin to imagine with all of the research that we have. In order for you to understand... Now, I think a child can pick this up and you can get the gospel... You can know who God is. You can know how to honor God with your life. But this is not a simple book. This is a beautifully rich book that you will never exhaust its riches or its depths. Number three, you, you read it, you study it. Number three, you meditate on it. That, of course, is what we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where you write it on the doorframe of your house, on your forehead, on your hand. You just saturate your life with it. But let me ask you this. You ever have a song get stuck in your head? I, I almost always have a song at any given time stuck in my head. Okay, you can just ask my kids. They're over there probably nodding right now. I almost always have, and I'll just sing the same stinking phrase over and over and over again. A lot of times it's a country song, but we won't get into that right now. Uh, and that kind of thing just happens, okay? Uh, meditating on the Word means that you get the Bible stuck in your head, where you just ruminate on it, you're thinking about it, you're, you're contemplating it, you're wanting to discuss it with other people. Some of you just love coming to Bible study, you love the, uh, the conversations that we have. It's a beautiful thing. That's part of being faithful to the Word and having a Word-centered righteousness. Number four, you put it into practice. Now, this is the part we all love, right? It's okay for us to read it. It's okay for us to study it. And maybe, maybe we might even meditate on it. But where the rubber really meets the road is when you have to put it into practice in daily life. James chapter 1, verse 22, he says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Do what it says. So be men and women of the word. Read it. Study it. Meditate on it. Put it into practice. Joseph is arriving at one of the most decisive moments in his entire life and he's ready for it because he spent his life doing what? Being faithful to the word. 
He's the kind of person that the angel can come and speak to, and he's ready for the moment. In the power of the Holy Spirit, he's ready for it. Now, folks, if somebody came in here and said, Jared, uh, in order to save your life, you're going to sit down at that piano and play us a tune. Then I'd say, Lord, I'm coming home, right? Because I can't sit down at a piano and play. Well, I can play Lean on Me or something, but that's about it, right? That's about it. But Sarah can come up here and it wouldn't, we'd, we'd all be going home after this, right? Because uh, she can do it. She spent her life playing the piano. She's ready for that moment. Joseph has spent his life practicing the law practicing the word and so when a critical moment came in his life where God was calling him to a mission he was ready to step forward and do what God had called him to do which brings us to lesson number two embody the compassion and love of God embody the compassion and love of God I'm going to say something and I just want you to think about it if and I'm going to try to prove it to you but if righteousness were just simply about following rules Joseph could not be counted as righteous. If righteousness were just about following the rules, he could not be counted as righteous. And I'll tell you why. The law gives a very specific explanation of what he is to do in this situation. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 23 and 24. You can read it for yourself, but I'll read it for you. If a man happens to meet in a town a virgin pledged to be married, and he sleeps with her, You shall take both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. The young woman, because she was in a town and did not scream for help, and the man, because he violated another man's wife, you must purge the evil from among you. Now, you say, well, that didn't happen. But, of course, from Joseph's perspective, he doesn't have the backstory that we have. Not until the angel speaks it to him. It's only the angel who comes along a little bit later. It says, verse 20, after he had considered this, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because breaking news, what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. He didn't know all of that until the angel announced that to him. If Joseph read the Bible a certain way, he could have said, well, the Bible says it and that settles it. And without giving any critical thought to how he could apply it to his own situation, he could have blindly overseen the stoning of Mary and he could have gone home and that would have been fine in that culture. Why wouldn't stoning Mary be the righteous thing for Joseph to do? Why wouldn't that be the right thing for him to do? That's not what he was going to do. He was just going to divorce her quietly and move on. So why Not Why was he doing the righteous thing, even though it seems to not be what Deuteronomy 22 called him to do? As I've told you before, the Torah, the law, is like a math problem, a set of math problems, where it imagines all of these situations that take place, and it says, here's what you're doing in this situation, here's what you're doing in this situation, and it's not exhaustive. It doesn't cover every imaginable situation. It gives you a range of situations, and you're to read all of it. You're to uh, analyze all of it, to examine all of it, the whole counsel of God's Word, and then you're to put it into practice. And Joseph probably had read a few other passages as well, such as Exodus 34. Now, I want you to, you can just write this down. You can turn there, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, because this tells us who God is. If you're going to be righteous, a word-centered righteousness means that you are becoming like God in his character and his integrity. You are being formed into the image of Christ where you are like 
Jesus, where if you're presented with a situation, you handle that ethical situation in the same way that Jesus would handle that kind of situation. And so, for example, in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, here's what we learn about uh, uh, God. It says, Moses, a little backstory. Moses said, show me your glory. Famous passage in the Old Testament. We were doing really good in a sermon series. I had uh, one sermon planned for this passage that turned into five real quick. It was like five weeks, one sermon, because this passage just wrecked all of it. Moses said, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God said, I will allow my goodness to pass in front of you. And then he narrates his goodness. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children of the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. A little bit later on in Matthew, when Jesus ascends the mountain and he begins to talk about the Beatitudes, what we know of as the Beatitudes, he says in chapter 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. We serve a compassionate God, a loving God, a faithful God, a just God, but His justice and His faithfulness, His compassion, they don't operate against each other. And the interesting thing is, in John chapter 8, Jesus finds Himself in a similar situation. An adulteress is brought before Him and What do they do? They quote the Old Testament to Jesus. Now, I just want you to try that sometime where you've got a problem with God and you try to quote his word back to him. But that's what they did. They brought the adulterers before Christ. They said, here's what the law of Moses says. What do you want us to do? And Jesus, playing chess while everybody else is playing checkers, he says to them, Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, I've tried to imagine myself in the situation of the adulteress when she hears those words, and the Bible gives the description that she's like down on the ground. She's ready for her life to end in a very brutal way. And the next thing she hears is a bunch of thuds around her as stones hit the ground and people leave. And then it says that Jesus straightened her up And said, who is there to condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What Joseph does in Matthew 1 is a reflection of the fact that he is a person who's faithful to the law. But his heart is aligned with the heart of God, a heart of compassion and a heart of love. Lesson number three. Lesson number three. Join God in his mission with courage and obedience. So... Uh, Joseph um, was the man he was because he had been formed by the revelation of God. God had revealed himself in his word. Uh, Joseph had read it. He had studied it. He had meditated on it. He had a lifetime of applying God's word to his life. Uh, But in order for Joseph to continue in righteousness, he had to proceed in courage and obedience to do what the angel of the Lord called him to do. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. By doing that, he would enter into this mission, into this struggle. Um, 
And over in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, we can very quickly see there's consequences to that decision. Now, you've got to just love Joseph because he's minding his own business. He's happily engaged. He's in the sleepy town of Nazareth, uh, probably making a house in the suburbs somewhere. I don't know. he's, He's having a good time living a quiet life, and now this angel appears to him. One chapter later, he's running for his life while King Herod is after him, right, and after his family. That escalated quickly in the matter of one chapter. But that was what Joseph signed on for. He knew from the beginning that in obeying the angel, he's joining God's mission to live his life with a new purpose because his son would be named Jesus who will save his people from their sins. He would be the Messiah. By agreeing, he is joining God in his mission, we learn from him that when God speaks to us in his word and he calls us to a task, to a mission, it is almost always going to require from us courage. People say, well, I'm scared to share my faith. I'm intimidated by sharing my faith. Yes, all of us are. There's like a few folks that that just comes very natural for them and they've shared the gospel without even knowing it. They're good at personal evangelism. It's just like a gift to them. But so many of us, even to use your gift, it requires courage and it requires obedience on behalf of all of us. But we are to join God in his mission to be strong and of good courage and go forth in obedience. That's why it says, verse 24, when Joseph woke up, He did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him to do, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. He was meticulous in following the command of the Lord. Verse uh, Lesson 4, and then we're done this morning. Be crucified with Christ and live. Be crucified with Christ and live. Now, there's something I believe going on behind the scenes in all of this that we should be aware of. I told you that Joseph is a righteous man. I didn't tell you that. The Bible tells us that, that he is a man faithful to the law. He is a righteous man. That is his identity, and that was his reputation when all this took place. Your identity and your reputation are two separate things, if you think about it. Your identity is who you are and who God knows you to be. That's your identity, okay? Who you are and who God knows you to be. Your reputation is what others think of you and who others think you are. Now, of course, the world from beginning to end is filled with people who had a reputation that was not accurate of their identity. Quite often, uh, it's uh, a good reputation when they shouldn't have a good reputation because their identity is not that of righteousness and one of character and integrity. But the opposite is true as well, where you can have a bad reputation and yet be a person of character and integrity. And that's exactly what's about to happen to Joseph. You see, there would have been a stigma attached uh, to Mary from the moment that she announced that she was pregnant with child before she was officially married, certainly in that context. By Joseph joining with her and continuing with her, he himself decides to join in her struggle and bear the shame and the reproach that she had as well. He made that choice. He would have gone from being considered a righteous person, a tzaddik, 
going to the other end to people probably like Jesus was hanging out with in Luke 15, known as the sinners. This is the choice that Joseph made. By the way, Jesus' what people called his illegitimate birth hung with him, I think, through his whole life. In John 8, 41, he's in a dialogue with the Pharisees, and uh, the Pharisees say, hey, we're not of illegitimate birth. So I, I think that probably stuck with him for the remainder of his life. Joseph intentionally chose to enter into that. He put to death his old life, his old self, in order to follow after what God was calling him to do. Now, if you think about it, his story takes on a cruciform character to it. Where he is being crucified, he is crucifying that old life in order to receive the life that God has for him, very much like Christ himself. Now, you think about the fact that Jesus was crucified on a cross. Now, this is one of those things where I think it's important for us not just to read, not just to study, but to meditate on it, okay? Because I don't think if you just read it and you study it that you're going to get to this place. But I want you to think about for just a moment crucifixion. What is the purpose of crucifixion? We might say, well, obviously it's to kill someone. The purpose of crucifixion is to kill someone. But there are much more efficient ways to kill someone. They could have killed Jesus before they ever got him uh, to the cross. They could have killed him a long time ago. But the point of crucifixion is to call someone intense suffering, but with the purpose of humiliating them and shaming them before everybody else. That's why it was such a spectacle and a show for Jesus to be crucified. It would have taken all the drama out of it. It would have taken all of the fanfare out of it if someone would have just uh, slit his throat or something early on and he never went to the cross. But the purpose of a cross is to humiliate and shame. That was the goal of uh, the Romans, of course. And you think about it, he was uh, crucified on what? On a hill called Mount Calvary. And we're not talking about like Mount Everest, kind of Mount Calvary. We're talking about like a hill. For them, it was kind of like a stage to put these criminals on a stage so that everybody else could see their humiliation and see their shame and say, I don't want to be associated with that guy. And guess what? Early on, it was working because most of the disciples were huddled up in a room somewhere afraid for their lives. It worked for Peter. He denied even knowing Jesus. That's the whole purpose of going through this fanfare of a crucifixion is to humiliate, to shame, so nobody else wants to be associated with this person. But what the Romans used as a stage for their brutality and their hatred, for humiliation and shame, God uses a stage for his love. To put before all creation for thousands of years up until this day, for everybody to be able to reflect back on that old rugged cross, on that hill called Mount Calvary, and know without any doubt that we serve a God of love. That he would send his son and he would die in such a brutal fashion. Why? So that he might share in our humiliation and our shame. That he might bear our griefs and our sorrows. Because that's the God that we serve. That's who Joseph was. But he was a reflection of his God. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the radiance of his glory. 
So, as we wrap this up, I want you to know one thing. I want you to know one thing. Your Father in heaven, he loves you. And you don't have to wonder about that. You can look back to an actual event in human history and see what God did. The Bible says that and while we were yet sinners, God proved his love for us in sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. God proved his love for us while we were yet sinners. He, while you're yet sinners, not the 2.0 version of you, not you getting yourself all together and then coming to God, not you taking a bath and then getting everything sorted out and then coming to God. No, he is the bath. He is the one who washes you. He is the one who cleanses you. And he is the father of the prodigal son that long before he ever heard any explanation, he ran to his son and he embraced his son. And my question for you this morning is, do you receive that love? Do you receive the love of the father in heaven? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. Can we just meditate on that for a moment? Because some of you, you're, you're kind of like the prodigal. You're in the midst. You're in the thick of rebellion right now. You're here this morning maybe because it's Father's Day, maybe because it's just a thing that your family does on Sunday, and you're just here. But you know you're in the thick of rebellion against God. Maybe that's not your reputation, but maybe that is your identity right now. You are that prodigal son. I want you to know if God saw you come over hill, He wouldn't run from you. He wouldn't lock his doors. With joy unimaginable, he would run to you. He'd embrace you. He'd celebrate. The question is, will you receive that amazing, breathtaking love? You are a good father, Lord. And I pray this morning as we reflect on your word that, that we just be overcome by your grace, by your compassion, by the fact that we can be prodigals here this morning. Maybe we can't even look at ourselves in the mirror. But help us to know that there's a God who, in heaven who created us in his image and who delights in us. Lord, help us to respond in obedience, with courage, and repentance and faith. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. The altar's open. If you want to come make a decision for Christ today or to be baptized or to join our church, great. Maybe you just need to come kneel at the altar and say, thank you, Lord. Maybe you just need to come kneel at the altar and do something tangible to tell God, I received that love from you this morning. Whatever it is, let's respond right now as the Spirit leads.